3: Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 13, The Goal. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created specifically for adult audiences, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are truly mine. Barrister Sam DiCarlo has agreed to come on to the podcast. He represented Max Seeker at both his committal proceedings and at his trial. Sam has some amazing and interesting insights into the case. Sam has a busy schedule and it is taking time to align all the ducks in a row to enable an interview with him to take place. I will be able to bring you that interview in episode 14. In the interim, some significant new evidence has come to light regarding witness Andrea B. So welcome to episode 13, The Goal. It seems everyone has an opinion on Andrea B. Many expressed them to me, and none were supportive of her. Episode 11, Max Confesses, generated the most comments of this entire podcast. Here is a broad cross-section of those
1: comments. As a retired member with 35 years service, 14 as a detective, including Homicide Squad, I find it incredulous the police relied on this witness. It's fairly obvious she has her own mental health issues and could only be described as highly unreliable. Great podcast, mate. Keep up the good
2: work. This interview sounds like she's made the whole thing up. Seems like a made-up confession to me. Not very clear, and the cop's trying to put words in her mouth. It's just a whole load of waffle. I can't even understand what she is trying to say. Half the time it sounds like they are hypothesising and half the time asking questions, but not direct questions.
3: After episode 11 dropped... The Seeker family sent me some correspondence in relation to Andrea B. I had never seen before. I can only say, wow. Just, wow. After reading the file they sent me, I was both stunned and angry. But more about that a bit later. And I need to explain. I do not, and have not, discuss the contents of any episode of the podcast with the Seeker family before it is released, for obvious reasons. I want to keep my independence and be free to tell the story as I find it. Max Seeker's parents, Carlo and Anna Maria, as well as other family members, find out the contents of each episode the same time as you, the rest of my listeners, do. When the episode drops, I do visit Carlo and Anna Maria on a regular basis. They are the custodians of the boxes and boxes of evidence relating to this case. And Carlo makes a superb Italian short black coffee. Both willingly answer all my questions and hand over every document I ask for and on every matter I have an interest in. It is a testament, I guess to their unconditional belief in Max's innocence. So, after innumerable short blacks, I leave the Singh household laden down with boxes of material. It never occurred to me to ask Carlo and Anna Maria if they had any material on Andrea B. I believed I'd seen it all. The video interviews with police, her evidence at trial, and her evidence at committal. What else could there be? After episode 11, Max's confesses aired, I received an email from Carlo. The email contained two reports by a psychiatrist prepared in 2011 and relating to Witness Andrea B. The two reports total 11 pages. The reports were obtained by solicitors acting for Maxika at the time. Because the reports contained sensitive medical and other material relating to Miss B. I cannot publish them. To be clear, the psychiatrist who furnished the reports never interviewed Andrea B. personally, and he goes to some lengths to explain that in his reports. When he was instructed Solicitors provided him with a large amount of material, including Ms. B's 53 page statement, her evidence at the committal proceedings and the Crime and Misconduct Commission, her complete medical history, a DVD of the police interview with Ms. B, as heard by you in episode 11, a DVD of conversations between police and Max Seeker Recorded telephone calls more than 70 between Andrea B and police and other people A recorded telephone call of 43 minutes between Andrea B and Max Seeker The psychiatrist was asked to assess witness Andrea B As a result he furnished a 7 page report Following some further questions from the instructing solicitors, the psychiatrist wrote a further four-page report. Where do I start? I have picked out several comments from the 11 pages of material which I believe accurately reflect the psychiatrist's findings. I could literally give you 10 plus more findings he made, but I am confident these comments are an accurate representation of his reports. And I'll go further and add that the comments you will hear are the kindest comments of all by the psychiatrist towards Ms B. In writing on her medical
1: records, he said this. The background history given by Miss B to Dr M is so different in many ways from the one she gave to Dr S that one could question that they are about the same person.
3: Hmm. Not off to a good start. And in assessing Ms B, the psychiatrist wrote this.
1: Having been involved in writing reports for medico-legal purposes for approximately 25 years, and having read numerous witness statements and affidavits, I can truly say that I have never read a witness statement that has ever been close to the style of the 53-page document prepared by Ms B. Over a seemingly three- to four-month period with at least four earlier drafts existing. Rather than being a sober and objective outline of facts, this document is much more in the style of a Mills and Boone novel in which Ms B. takes on what might be described as a dramatic and heroic style spiced up with sexualized references and infused with what might best be described as pop psychology. There are many concerning aspects to Ms B's testimony. When separated from her carefully rehearsed script, her memory of events that she sees as very important is, when cross-examined, very poor. Her account to the CMC hearing is at substantial variance with much of the committal hearing testimony she gives. Ms B is a psychologically vulnerable individual who has assumed an heroic role. There are so many major inconsistencies in her account allied with her need to please individuals in positions of authority, for example police, that for psychological reasons it is not safe to assume her account of Mr Seeker's alleged confession to her is factual. Indeed, Ms B exhibits considerable distress regarding her perception that the police had lost interest
3: in her. To be honest, I was floored when I read the psychiatrist's reports. How Ms B ever made it to the witness box is up there with other unexplained mysteries of the universe. The psychiatrist also wrote in his findings some comments regarding the conduct of the detectives.
1: Here is one snippet. Indeed, on tape 21, the police officer's cynicism, insincerity and overall low opinion of Miss B is unmistakably captured at the beginning of the recording, when just immediately prior to picking her up to take her for the arranged appointment with Susan S, one detective is heard to say in low tones, in respect to Mrs. B, Fucking dumb bitch. Elsewhere, the psychiatrist
3: wrote that there were at least 70 telephone conversations between detectives and Miss B, some at least one hour in length, most initiated by Miss B, where, in his words, she would unburden herself. I cannot believe any experienced detective would consider Miss B was a credible witness. The investigator spent weeks, if not months, talking to her. They did not need a psychiatrist's report to tell them she was a disturbed individual whose evidence was of dubious and questionable value. The retired Homicide Squad detective, who commented above, summed it up after listening to her ramblings on the tape. Similarly, with a prosecutor. In case you're not aware, a prosecutor will talk to every witness before he calls them to give evidence. He wants to evaluate them to make sure they understand what evidence they are to give. A witness with a 53-page statement of evidence would occupy a large chunk of a prosecutor's time before the witness walked into the witness box and swore to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. The prosecutor knew about the psychiatrist's reports. He had read them. He did not want those reports anywhere near the jury. He did not want the jury to know what a qualified psychiatrist was writing about her. The prosecutor made an application to the court to exclude the psychiatrist's reports from evidence. And the court agreed with his submissions. And then he called her. Welcome to the adversarial system of justice. For those who are not familiar... With Australia's judicial system and my overseas listeners, I will give you a brief overview. Once a defendant is charged with an offence, civil or criminal, he or she faces the adversarial system of justice. Think gladiators. Two opponents facing off against each other. A fight to the death. Metaphorically, of course. The goal is to win. Nothing else. There is no second place. There is no provision nor interest in evaluating the facts to learn the truth. I will repeat that because it is an important and integral part of our judicial system. There is no provision nor interest in evaluating the facts to learn the truth. The gladiators each present their version of events and the impartial body the judge or jury, make a determination. I will always remember Graham Stafford, who was charged with the murder of Leanne Holland. After his arrest, he, as well as his family, genuinely believed the court would realise there had been a terrible mistake and he would be released. Quickly. They actually thought it was that simple. I mean... They genuinely believed it would all come out in court. None of the family had ever been inside a courtroom and had no idea of how the system operated. Imagine Graham Stafford's horror when he learned that the truth was an inconvenience and the court case was simply about convicting him of the murder. The old adage, which you may or may not have heard before, sums up the Australian court system succinctly. A barrister or solicitor will not ask a question of a witness he does not already know the answer to. Think about that. How can you get to the truth if you cannot ask questions and won't ask questions unless you already know the answer? Under no circumstances does the barrister want an answer from a witness about something he has not heard before. It could literally be the difference between winning and losing the case. For completeness, I will add that at committal proceedings, and voir where they occur, the system does take on an inquisitorial aspect, and questions are asked to get to the truth. But always remember the goal. It reminds me of that scene in the movie A Few Good Men in which actor Jack Nicholson is answering a question put to him by actor Tom Cruise. That may be how the game is played in the United States but it is certainly not the way the game is played in Australia. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want
0: answers? I want the
3: truth. You can't handle the truth. There are rules in adversarial justice, of course. One of them relating to the prosecutor is, he must be fair. Just remind me how it is fair that he refused to call Max Seeker's brother Claudio. He refused to call Claudio's partner Marcia Q. Both of whom could say Max Seeker was home on the Sunday night. They were unreliable, he said. Sympathetic to the defendant, he said. Whether the prosecutor knew about Lisa L or not, we may never know. He should have known about her. That was his job. Her evidence that all Seeker family cars were out front at 1am on the Monday morning was certainly inconvenient for the Crown case. I can understand why they would be reluctant to call her. Just remind me how it is fair that the prosecutor called Andrea B to give evidence in a triple murder trial. You would not let that woman near the witness box in a traffic matter. Star witness for the prosecution. And I mean star witness. Before Miss B came riding onto the set, On her white horse, we shall call her the heroine for accuracy. The Queensland Police did not have a case against Max Seeker. On two occasions, the police had handed a brief of evidence to the DPP, and on both occasions, the prosecutors advised the police they did not have sufficient evidence to prosecute. Once Miss B's evidence was added to the script, The prosecution agreed there was now a case against Seeker. Arrangements were made to arrest Max Seeker. So let me make sure I have this correct. A psychologically challenged individual, divorced from reality, with no credibility, resulted in the conviction of a person for three murders. I think that is accurate. Without her evidence, Max Seeker
2: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
3: Ms B and her evidence reflects extremely poorly on the DPP and the Queensland Police. The Crown was clearly so desperate for evidence, any evidence, to portray Max Seeker as the killer, that they called Andrea B as a witness, whilst knowing her evidence was a train wreck, that Miss B was a locomotive speeding toward the level crossing smash. But never forget the goal. And remember, it's not the court's position to find out whether Max Seeker murdered those children. The prosecution goal is to win. That's it. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. The only ones who would not see the funny side of it would be the defendant and the victims. What influence did Miss B have on the jury? Were they leaning toward guilty before she gave evidence? Were they leaning toward not guilty before they heard her bizarre story? We will never know. We do know they asked the judge to let them view the videotaped interviews of her with the police. Their request was refused. I have never been on a jury. Perhaps some of my listeners have been. Perhaps you can relate some stories without breaking the law. I assume the jury would say something to each other along the lines of, well, the prosecutor and the police believe this witness has something important to say about this case, Otherwise, the witness would not be called. By the way, the jury were also not in on the aforementioned joke. I wonder if the prosecutor and detectives were proud of calling Ms B as a witness. If they all adjourned to the police club after court and had a beer and a laugh about her. Maybe they couldn't believe their luck that they got her evidence in. I think they should hang their collective heads in shame. It makes me Very angry, but then I remember the goal. You may recall that in episode four, I covered Miss B as a witness, but at that time I did not play the actual recorded interview with police. Instead, I had a friend read out the prosecutor's remarks covering her evidence, followed by the judge's comments to the jury regarding her evidence. I went back and read again the prosecutor's comments. Studied them, actually. He clearly didn't believe a word she said. But he invited the jury to believe her. I am referring to his opening and closing comments. Here again is his address to the jury
1: regarding Andrea B. You decide. Whilst I'm about to outline to you evidence of what the Crown says is a confession that he made to the killing of Nema and hence, in the context of the allegations to the killing of the others, we say that you can reach the conclusion of guilt to the standard of beyond reasonable doubt by reference only to the circumstantial case. Nonetheless, the evidence of Andrea B. will afford you an extra, albeit, we say, unnecessary degree of comfort in reaching that conclusion, and let me speak to you about that now. Miss B. was a friend of the accused. She'd first met him in about the late 1980s. She worked in the accused parents' business. They lost contact in the mid-90s. She made contact with him after seeing some television coverage in which he was featured concerning the killings. They spoke, emailed and sent texts to each other over the next five years. Most of the communications, or at least a large proportion of it, dealt with the killings. You'll hear from Ms B that some months after she started speaking to Max Seeker about the killings, she decided to write a book. Max Seeker was aware of this. You'll hear that on a number of occasions he said things to suggest that he thought she was talking to police about their conversations anyway. Nevertheless, he continued to talk to her. Typically their conversations followed something of a question and answer format rather than a free-flowing conversation and centred upon what a killer may have done and why. As I say, even though he accused her of working for the police, he continued to talk to her. There are lengthy periods over this five years in which there was no contact between the two. Periods of months at a time and, indeed by 2008, their meetings were fairly sporadic. They arranged to meet on the 16th of March of 2008. That's the eve of his birthday. He's born on the 17th of March. She didn't turn up at the arranged time. He contacted her to make sure she was coming. When they did meet, she noticed that he was drinking alcohol. Now the degree of intoxication and how it affected him will be a matter for you to decide. On the Crown case, he was affected, but only comparatively mildly, but nonetheless, we accept that he was affected to some degree. At least on the Crown case, whatever degree he was affected was not such as to make what he said that night unreliable. He was unguarded in what he said, and he asked Miss B whether she was going to grill him, meaning, it would seem, whether the conversation was going to deal with the killing. She said it would. They spent several hours together that night. Towards the latter part of the period, she asked if he was remorseful for what had happened. He said words to the effect that he cried about what he did, and that if he could take it back, he would. After a little more conversation, he said words to this effect. He asked if you knew how hard it is to kill someone when they ask you to, please don't. I paused to note, the cause of Nealman's death was strangulation. There was other conversation that night before she dropped him back home and about that time, around about the time he was getting out of the car, he asked if he was, and again I quote, busted. And he said something to the effect that it was alright if it was her. She said he wasn't. Given all of his earlier knowledge of her writing a book and his expressed belief that she was working for the police on the Crown case, he, at the very least, must have understood that there was a chance his comments would be reported to authorities. The Crown case is that that evidence is an admission of guilt. It's another layer of evidence which will go to prove the guilt of the accused man. Should for some reason you not accept that evidence, the guilt on our case is nonetheless proven by the circumstantial case that i spent some time outlining to you.
3: I will leave that train wreck right there. I have added a link to the show notes to a web page that lists 11 advantages and disadvantages of the adversarial system, if you wish to read further. It is always pleasant to receive bouquets in relation to my podcasts. In recent weeks, I have received some very positive comments. Thank you very much for the feedback.
0: Extra excellent episode, Graham. This podcast still rates as my number one of about 15 podcasts I follow. Graham Crowley, thanks for all the hard work reasoning and thoughtfulness you put into your research. Your podcasts are a treat to listen to. Loving the podcast, Graham. I remember this so well, being a 20-year-old living in Brisbane in Upper Mount Gravatt. I thought 110% it was Max, but after listening to this, I highly doubt it. Even though he's a criminal, I think there is so much more the investigation missed.
3: Whenever I start getting my head in the clouds, my harshest critic, Peter, always brings me back to earth. Her most recent comments to me and my replies to her are too lengthy to repeat here. This is one segment of them.
0: Furthermore, the fact that Sika had no previous recorded history of violence against women is completely irrelevant. Countless studies and examples indicate that this need not be a factor in domestic homicides. You had Shannon on your podcast who made this very clear, but you took none of that on board.
3: Peter and I will agree to disagree on that point. I actually took everything Shannon had to say on board. Her comments did cause me to reflect and do some further research. This was a DV incident, no question on the police case. Peter kindly pointed me to two articles by British criminologist Jane Moncton Smith. You will find links to both articles in the show notes. And just to clarify, where I say IPH or IPF, I am referring to intimate partner homicide or intimate partner femicide. Moncton Smith writes that IPH killers follow an eight-stage pattern. The eight stages are. 1. A pre-relationship of stalking or abuse 2. The romance developing quickly into a serious relationship 3. The relationship becoming dominated by coercive control 4. A trigger to threaten the offender's control For example, the relationship ends or the offender gets into financial difficulty 5. Escalation An increase in the intensity or frequency of the partner's control tactics such as stalking or threatening suicide. 6. The offender has a change of thinking, choosing to move on either through revenge or homicide. 7. The offender may buy weapons or seek opportunities to get the victim alone. 8. Homicide. The offender kills his or her partner and possibly hurts others, such as the victim's children. I am the first to agree Maxika ticks some, but not all, of the first five stages. If Max Seeker did not commit the murders, and again for clarity I state I do not know, it is stages 6, 7 and 8 that intrigue me. They are a change of thinking, planning and the murder. I searched online statistics of IPH in Australia and the statistics I found are as follows. Australian police deal with 5,000 domestic violence matters on average every week. I found an article researching this very subject for the period 2002 to 2012. I will be quoting statistics here, but don't worry, I have attached a link to the article in the show notes. And remember, the Singh murders are incorporated in these statistics. Of the 2,631 murders that occurred in that period in Australia, 654, or 25%, were classed as IPH murders. Domestic family murders represented 41% of all murders so that means over 1 iph murder per week occurred in australia females made up 75% of all victims 68% of the murders occurred in the victim's home the most common age group of the victims was 35 to 39 and represents 39% of all victims Neilma's age group comprised just 13% of statistics. The causes of death were stabbing, 42%, beating, 21%, and strangulation, 14%. The statistics noted that the consistent finding across 23 years of homicide monitoring has been that stab wounds are most frequently the cause of death in family murders. The most common male offender, representing 41%, was aged 35 to 49 years of age. Max Seeker's age group comprised 24% of offenders. In 88% of murders, there was a single victim. Although rare, where there are additional victims, they are likely to be family members. A small number of IPH involved multiple victims. Only 8% in fact. Of 27 IPH where multiple victims were involved, only 4 were other family members. 23 were children of the relationship. IPH multiple victims represented just 4% of statistics. Single victim and offender represented 92% of the statistics. 44% of IPH offenders had recorded history of domestic violence. Victim alcohol or drug use amounted to 53%. Offender alcohol or drug use amounted to 48%. How do I summarize these statistics when talking about the Singh murders? I do not know what they were but I do not believe the Singh murders was a domestic violence event on those statistics. If you do not agree with my findings, by all means tell me, but please be polite. One listener asked me this question.
0: Do you see a need for a reinvestigation of this case or perhaps some other further action by police?
3: I can say quite categorically I do not want a reinvestigation of these murders nor a review of the evidence in the Singh murders. Neither do Queensland police nor the Queensland government but for different reasons. If you look at the case from the police government viewpoint they obtained a conviction. They won. The legal system did its job. It's not relevant if new evidence comes to light. They achieve their goal. Their new goal is to ensure no appeals against the conviction are successful. They literally just want this case to be buried. A barrister once said to me there are only two cases in Queensland the government are scared about. The Leanne Holland murder and the Singh murders. Why do I not want a reinvestigation? Queensland police would have to be dragged kicking and screaming to any such investigation and as such it would be a damage control exercise at best along the lines of how can we look like we are investigating the murders but at the same time do nothing pretty much just what they did in the Leanne Holland case I would be happy to see a coronial inquest into the Singh murders Queensland police can and do influence coronial courts but they cannot control them but I am confident the Queensland government will never hold an inquest into the Singh murders, just as they refuse to hold an inquest into the Leanne Holland murder. The only difference being that under Queensland legislation, the government is legally obliged, never mind morally, to hold an inquest into the Holland murder. They just refuse to do so and continue to break their own laws and they cannot be held to account for it. Bizarre, really. I am yet to receive any reply to my email to Queensland Police inviting the arresting officer to be interviewed on the podcast. My friend Peter said to me I was insincere in my email to the police. I say I was cranky. I took Peter's comments on board, and I was more sincere when I wrote to Sam Carlo, and he has agreed to come on to the podcast. You will hear from him in episode 14. That's it for The Goal. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. I hope to have episode 14, The Defence Speaks, out within two weeks, but it does depend when I can pin Sam DiCarlo down to an interview. He is busy and I respect that. If you follow the podcast... You would be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the podcast, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends The Sing Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends two thousand three at outlook dot com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.